This message is part of the teaching provided by House on the Rock Fellowship, a church caring for the Miami Valley region. Before you listen, be sure to access the notes in the download section of the message page. Have a Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. My eldest son's soccer coach is Colombian. He has a very thick Colombian accent. He's a great coach, big guy, big guy. Uh, the last game that Lucas played, their last high school game, the, the, they tied zero to zero. Now, for a team, that, that's, a, that's a tie. But for Lucas, because he's a goalkeeper, that's a win. Because that meant that no balls got past him. It's no error, no fault. He's, it's a win for the keeper, as far as we're concerned. Okay? And the coach, after the game, big, big, he comes, he walks up to Lucas, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. picks up Lucas with these big arms, I'm proud of him, proud of him. Interesting thing. Because English is not his primary language. When he gets excited in the game, he goes from English to Spanish. <laughs> and we're talking about people who don't speak Spanish. And so maybe there'll be a breakaway or something going, and he's like, go, 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 go. He starts going off in this, this thing. I, the first time I heard it, I thought it was like a charismatic moment. Like we, like a revival was going to break out in the middle of the game because the coach starts speaking in tongues. <laughs> Beginning of a game, he was getting frustrated because the team wasn't passing and worked on passing a lot. And soccer is a game of passing. If you don't know anything about soccer, it's about passing. It's not about dribbling. It's about passing, moving the ball from one player to another, finding open lanes, passing. So you hear him, passies, 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 passies. He's again and again and again, like, I got to Everyone pass the ball. And he started pounding his hand like, passies, passies. He said that constantly. The entire first half of the game, just screaming, passies, passies, passies. And then all of a sudden, they start to pass the ball. They're like, ah, I like a dece. I like a dece. When they started to pass the ball, the entire game shifted. The dynamic of the game shifted. He had to say it again and again and again and again. But once they started to do it, the entire dynamic of what they were doing shifted and changed. He had to say it again and again and again. Do you know what commandment the Bible says again and again and again and again more than any other? Again and again and again and again and again. The Bible says this. 250 times, in fact, it says this. Explicitly. From Genesis all the way to Revelation. We are commanded to praise God. We are commanded to glorify God in all that we do. The Bible repeats this most, this commandment most. Praise him, glorify him, bless him. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not his benefits. Colossians 3, sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thanksgiving. Hebrews 13, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
Do you need a game changer? Do you need the game to change? Do you need to see a shift? As you look back on your week, as you look back on your marriage, as you look back at work, as you look back on your prayer life, do you need to see something change? The Bible would say again and again and again and again, praise God. Glorify God. Everything shifts. This whole summer series has been of a, a little bit of a mixtape, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. We're going to finish that up today. We looked at the great song about Jesus in Colossians. We looked at uh, the most common referenced uh, psalm in the New Testament, Psalm 110. We looked at the most quoted verses of the Old Testament from Exodus 34. We looked at uh, what the Bible says, the most important thing to get. If you get anything, get wisdom. These big hits, these big themes in Scripture. Doug, one of our elders, taught on communication. Adam, one of our elders, taught on the Lord's table. I spent one Sunday and threw the sermon away, and we just talked about centering our lives on the gospel. This week, I want to do, I want to do two things, our time together. I want us to look at this most repeated command, this number one hit, if you will, and set up what's going to be our theme in our study for September. To get started, let's look at Psalm 19 together. Psalm 19. Nikki's going to have verses up on the screen for you to follow along. If you don't have a Bible, they're located in the seats in front of you. They're very difficult to read. We do that on purpose, so you'll go by your own. Um, <laughs> still, we want you to have access to Scripture. We want you to have access to the Bible. The Bible is very important to us. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God the Bible teaches us about. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. Let me read it for you. If you're watching online, follow along, please. Psalm 19, 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The poet looks up into the skies, what he calls the heavens, to him, this is the dwelling place of the divine. This is the dwelling place of God, all of his angelic beings and spiritual beings. This is one of the ways that God communicates. And as he looks up into God's space, he says, all of this declares God's glory to us down here below. He says, the sun sings of God's glory. The stars sing of God's glory. Everything moving the way it's supposed to move glorifies God. He says, I can hear it. He says, I can see it. Have you ever experienced that? You looked upon the stars and been aware of the presence of God, looked upon a sunrise or a sunset, thought upon the order, and said, whoa, 
Last night on our little neck of the woods on Maple Crest in Troy, the electricity went out. That's fun. We're just getting ready to eat brownies, too. <laughs> Neat thing about the power going out in brownies, you can still eat the brownies. <laughs> but so we kind of migrated outside to the front yard and invited our neighbors. Hey, come on on, hang out. We lit some candles, and the neighbors came over, and the neighbors came over, and we were chit-chatting. And our neighbor, Frank, who's from Hungary, loves to look at the airplanes and the satellites in the sky and notice the stars. And he was back telling us how back in the 50s and 60s when and where he was growing up on the outskirts of a small town in Hungary. No electricity to affect your vision, how he used to look upon the Milky Way and all the glory of the stars. Have you ever been impressed as the sky spoken to you and said, God is here? That's what this poet is saying. It sings of it. It speaks of it. I hear it. I see it. So maybe in your notes, let's write something down together. This might help us start to understand Glory is the radiance and the resonance of God. Glory is the radiance and resonance of God. It lights. It sings. Imagine a thunderstorm. The sight and the sound that accompanies the storm, the lightning that flashes across the sky, how it radiates through the sky, the resonance of the thunder. I'm not talking about a little baby thunderstorm. I'm talking about the kind of thunderstorm that brings you to your knees, that shakes the windows a little bit, that lets you know that there is something bigger and beyond you. Radiance, a light. When Moses goes up onto the mountain to meet with God, in Exodus, he has the boldness to speak of God. God, show me your glory. God says, Moses, if you see my face, you'll die. You're not designed for it. You're not built for it. But I'll tell you what I'll do. Moses, I will take you and I will press you into the side of the mountain. I'll press your face right into this crack here. And I will go by. And as I go by, I will let my glory Wash off my back, and you will see the glory of me pass by. It is so radiant that Moses' face will glow for many years. The glory of God has a radiance about it. There's a resonance. There's a sound to it, the kind of sound that gets you deep down in your soul. In Exodus 19, when Israel is meeting with God on the mountain for the very first time, the way it's described, you can almost hear it as you're reading the words. As it talks about thunder coming down on the mountain, trumpets building in loud crescendo to say that God is coming near and God speaking in the thunder. The kind of thunder that resonates deep in your being. I was talking to one of my sons about singing the other day. And I said, we, we, we don't want to sing through our nose like this. When we sing, we don't sing through our nose. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art. He's like, Dad, stop it. How great thou art. We don't sing through our nose. We want the sound to come from down here. We want to learn to resonate the sound down in our soul. He's like, Dad, stop it. I'm like, sorry, my bad. If we were to have an acoustic guitar up here, 
those of you who don't know much about instruments, an acoustic guitar is not like that one has the big, but has a hole right here. It's a resonating chamber so that when the instrumentalist plucks the string, it resonates in the body of the instrument, giving the sound weight and body. When you come into the presence of God, when God's glory draws close, it resonates. God's glory, this overlapping experience that takes humans and brings them to their knees. Like the storm says, I'm here. The glory of God. God says, I'm here. You want to put them both together, you look at Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah has a vision. He's brought into the very throne room of God, the divine space in the heavenlies. And he sees God and he says, the, the robe, the majesty, the glory of God filled the whole space. Fiery, angelic beings singing back and forth. Holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the very foundations of the space shook and thundered with the presence of God. In the radiance of, in the resonance of God, what does the prophet do? He falls to his knees. And what does he say? I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man. To encounter God's glory is to encounter the manifest presence of God. It humbles us and it shakes us to our core. That means to glorify God then, to give God glory, is to give it sight and sound to speak and to act and to do in such a way that it shines the spotlight and says, God is here. The sun declares it. The stars declare it. The moon, the most common command in Scripture, give light and sound to the reality of God. In the 1990s, Steven Spielberg's movie Schindler's List came out. Maybe you remember that. The story of the horrors of the Third Reich in Nazi Germany. The murder of the Jews. Powerful, powerful film. I remember we were in the process of, of prepping the Diary of Henri Franck in high school. And dad wouldn't even let us watch the movie uh, as we were prepping for that. Just, it's such a weighty film. But it's filmed in black and white. Do you remember that? It's a black and white in the 1990s, every movie to come out in black and white kind of gets you a little bit. Everything's in black and white except one thing. Little Girl in the Red Coat. How many of you remember the Little Girl in the Red Coat? Remember the film? Yeah. So the director made this creative decision in the midst of the horrors of the ghetto and all that was going on with the soldiers and the chaos of the city and the action that's going on in frame. He said, I want you to see this girl. I want you to see this little girl. Everything else is black and white, but we're going to color impose this red coat on this girl. And it does. As you're watching the movie, your attention goes to that girl. Whole scene is crazy. You're tracking this girl as she's running through the streets, as she's going down the halls, as she's running up the steps, as she's hiding underneath the bed. You are drawn to that girl. As the director said, I want you to see her. 
This is what it means to give glory to God. I want you to see him. We're going to land here for the month of September. But in the remainder of our time this morning, let's talk about the unique way we are invited to glorify God. How we give him glory. To help us do that, we're going to turn to John 17. John 17. As you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of the context. This is Jesus' prayer before his sacrifice. His prayer for himself, his prayer over his apostles, his prayer over his disciples. So you can imagine these words have a lot of weight to it. They have a lot of significance. This is what Jesus is praying for. He's about to go to his death. He's about to be murdered. What are the things that are on his heart? What are the things that are on his mind? It's consuming his attention. This is what he has to say. This is John 17. I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and I'll go down through verse 5 before I say some things. When Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let me just make a couple simple observations. He says, Father, he says, give my saving sacrifice weight. And what I'm about to do, glorify the Son. May a light from you shine upon this saving work. May it have resonance. May it have impact. May they see what I'm doing and may it glorify you. May my sacrifice glorify you. Father, in all that I did, I did what you asked me to do, and I did it so that you would be glorified. And Father, when this is done, may I return to that glory that you and I shared before this whole thing began. Do you pray that way? Do you pray that way? Do you pray that in all that you do, a light would shine upon the goodness and the character of God? God, may I do what you've asked me to do today and may a light shine upon you. God, may my life have a resonance about it that brings people into your presence. May all that I do give glory to you. Jesus then goes on to pray for the apostles, his immediate circle of his followers. We'll actually fall asleep in the garden while he's praying. And then he goes on and he prays for us. Did you know that? He prays for us specifically. In verse 20, chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus goes on to pray. I do not ask for these only, his apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, 
that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, have loved them as you've loved me. So, so remember, glory is this radiating, resonating presence of God, the quality that says God is here. It's attention grabbing. It's humbling. And what does Jesus want? Jesus wants his life and his sacrifice to shine a spotlight upon God. He wants people to notice God and the character of God and the quality of God through what he's about to do. And then what does Jesus ask for? That's what Jesus wants. So what does he go on and he asks for? This is in verse 21. That they be one. A oneness and a unity. Like the oneness and unity that the Father shares with the Son, that the Son shares with the Father. He says it a couple of times. He goes on and he says it again in, in, in 21 and verse 22, 23, that they may be one so the world may believe that you've sent me. That they may be one perfectly one so that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. So the sun shines and declares the glory of God. The stars sing and declares the glories of God. Like the radiance of God on the mountain that shone upon Moses. The resonating presence of God that brought Israel to its knees on the mountain. The thunderstorm within the divine room that shook Isaiah to his core. It's arresting. It's captivating. And so in this prayer, what does Jesus say? Jesus says to God, hey, Let's get the world's attention like we've never got the world's attention before. Let them see and believe. Let's reveal your glory, Father, in an amazing way. How? Give my followers unity. Think about that. Let's put up a billboard. Let's proclaim, God, your goodness and your power. Let's give you glory like never before. Make my followers one. Maybe we could say it this way in your notes. Write this down. Our unity reveals God's glory. It's our unity that reveals God's glory. Jesus says, may they have a relational oneness, Father, like you and I have a relational oneness. Make them one like you and I are one. Who sees the problem already? Who can see the problem already? God brings us on as his marketing team, okay? Brings us on to develop his marketing strategy. His mar brings us, hey, we're going to shine a light upon God. Who sees the problem already? Number one, 
we love to glorify ourselves. Notice me, see me, hear me, follow me, agree with me. I'm shining a light upon me. That makes glorifying God pretty difficult. Number two, our history alone testifies to our incredible inability to stay together. We treat each other like used tissues to be used and to be tossed aside. We prefer uniformity over unity. Let me give you a crash course in disunity. Okay? As a history major, a master's degree in history, crash course in church history, which is in essence a crash course in church disunity. For the first 1,000 years, 1,054 years, it's one church. We have one church with, in essence, one creed that all of us abide to and follow. There are five centers of the church, large geographical political areas. There's Rome and there's Antioch and there's Constantinople and Jerusalem and Alexandria. And within there are, there's leadership structures, metropolitans, bishops, anchoring the church in this one creed, in this one fellowship, in this one faith. One church, five main areas. A thousand years into it, I mean, every now and then they'd get together to kind of, hey, we're all on the same page. Okay, a thousand years into it, the head of things in Rome said, I'm going to tweak this on my own. And the other four are like, excuse me? So this side of the church kicks this side of the church out. You can't do that. You're done. So this side of the church kicks this side of the church out. No, you're done. So the church goes east and west. Or what's called the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Church, and the Western Church. They didn't talk to each other again until the 1960s. Did you know that? The division, the schism was so deep between the leadership that the Eastern Church and the Roman Church didn't talk until the 1960s. Okay? That was in year 1054. What we call the Great Schism. Whoosh. Now, it kind of stayed that way for about another 500 years until within the Western Church, there arose such a great discord and depravity and real serious issues of sin. But a few people rose and said, hey, can we fix this? Can we correct this? Because we see some real, in, some problems here. Guys like Martin Luther, etc. They're like, you need to toe the line or you're out. So Marty's like, all right, I'm out. We're out. So then now we have three. There was the Eastern Church doing their thing, the Roman Church doing their thing, and the protesters doing their thing. The protesting church. We like to say the Protestant church. Doesn't make us sound like jerks. <laughs> For the next 500 years, that body will subdivide another 300,000 times. In essence, 300,000 times we'll say, you're out. We're out. We're out. You're out. Splintering and dividing. Splintering and dividing. Splintering and dividing. You have all experienced it. 
This is your story. This is all of our story. It goes all the way. Even within the book of Acts, Paul said, we're going this way. Barnabas says, we're going this way. Paul says, we're going to do it this way. Barnabas said, we're going that way. Fine. Paul says, I'm going this way. Barnabas said, fine, I'm going that way. Can God work through disunity? Yeah, he has to, or God can't work through anybody. But oh, how it shapes and limits the capacity for a fellowship to radiate and resonate with the glory of God. Jesus says, bring them together in unity as you and I have experienced unity. There is distinction between the Father and the Son. There's diversity in the Father and the Son, but there's a oneness of heart and a oneness of mind. It's like when you watch my three sons play soccer. If you put them all on the field, go play soccer. Go, go you know, stick them on the same team. You can see there's a distinctive there. That's, all right, that's Lucas, that's Aiden, that's Jackson. There's not uniformity. There's, there's differences. There's similarities. There's differences. They all have one goal. They have one purpose. They might play different positions, which is great, which is fine. One goal, one purpose. So let me give you what I think are a couple keys to practice unity that reveal God's glory. Two keys that I feel reveal God's glory. We'll build on the idea of, of radiance and let's build on that idea of resonance a little bit. In your notes, write this down with me, please. Unity is, we're going to talk about unity. Unity is the light we shine as we walk in agape. Unity is the light we shine as we walk in agape. Please turn to Romans 15 after you write that down. Romans 15, 1 through 6. Again, we'll have the verses up on the screen for you. You turn to Romans 15, let me give you a little bit of the context so you understand what's going on. This is a church divided in the, the great city of Rome. Um, it's kind of broken up amongst five, six, seven, maybe life groups, house churches. You can read about that in the very end of the letter. In the very beginning of the church, it's predominantly Jewish because in the very beginning of the church, there's predominantly all Jews that follow Jesus. So getting together for church, the expression of the church had a very Jewish overtone to it. Jews have a way of eating. Jews have a way of dressing. Jews have a way of worshiping. Days that certain things are to happen. Things that are not supposed to be eaten. And this would have saturated the fellowship, which is fine. But Gentiles who aren't Jews start to come into the fellowship. So now you have people who eat differently, dress differently, think worship should happen differently. The tangible expressions of the faith are different in very fundamental ways. Fundamental ways. But then something terrible happens. Claudius the emperor kicks the Jews out of Rome which means in all the churches, all the Jews left. Leaving who? The Gentiles. Okay? So all that Jewish influence and Jewish expressions left with the Jews leaving Gentiles. So you know what? When we worship on Saturday, we're going to worship on Sunday because that's when Jesus rose from the grave. And who wants to bring pork to the pot roast and who wants to the potluck? Let's put some pepperoni on that pizza. And the Jews aren't there. It's in the Gentiles. They don't abide by that dietary code. They dress their way, worship their way. But then all of a sudden that restriction upon the Jews was lifted and the Jews could come back to Rome. So the Jews come back to church. And they're expecting you to go to church on Saturday. Well, when are the Gentiles getting together? Oh, we go to church on Sunday now. 
And they sit down for the potluck after church, and what do the Jews find? Is that a pork chop? Is that a... But... So incredible division rises up within the fellowship. And on one side, they're throwing down the Bible card left and right. The Jews are like, it says this in the Torah. It says Moses said this. This is how we eat. This is how we dress. This is when we go to church. And then you got the Gentiles over here, and they're just dropping the Jesus card left and right. But Jesus made us free, and Jesus said we don't have to, and I can eat pepperoni if I want to. <laughs> Bible card, Jesus card, Bible card, Jesus card, Bible card, Jesus card. And no one is walking in agape. And so Paul writes this whole letter to empower and force and encourage this way of walking because they're judging each other. They're dividing from each other. They're disregarding each other. This is what Paul says, Romans 15, verse 1. He says, we who are strong, that means those who have political advantage, those who have power within the culture, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, weaker of position. <clears throat> Not to please ourselves. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, the reproaches of those who have reproached you fell on me. Paul says you need to bear with each other. Your commitment is to build one another up. Like Christ did. You are to live in such a way that you reflect gospel. You're to live in such a way that you reflect the cruciform way of life. How he, Jesus, entered into the suffering of us and he picked up our burden and he carried it. This is agape. Christ with us to make us whole. That is agape. Christ with us and for us to make us whole. Notice I'm not saying the word love. Walk in love. It would be much more it would sound better in your ears. It would write better in the notes. Walk in love. That feels good. I can't, I'm really struck. I, I don't Culture's making that really difficult right now. Because when the Bible uses the word love, it's being very specific. It's being very precise. It's not up for you to define. It's not up for your own subjugation. Walking to the car... Walking from my car to um, a food store and lots of cars, and cars have bumper stickers, and this car had a lot of bumper stickers. And one of the bumper stickers said, Love is love. And I communicate for a living, it's what I do. Words matter. I'm like, Huh? What? Huh? What does that mean? Love is love. What is it? Love is love? Like, green is green? Now, I knew what they were saying because I read the other bumper stickers. But love is not up for us to define. Love is not love. You can't, what is it? We're in a culture where you put a sticker on it and you can make it whatever you want it to be. God didn't work that way. Love is not a sticker that you can slap on whatever you want. This is love and this is love and this is love and this is love. Well, I think this is love, and I think this is love, and I think this is love. So you can say, you should be loving, and I can say, you should be loving, and we are not talking about the same thing. And God said, this is love. 
Agape is the selfless act of service that brings someone into relationship with God. It's the loving thing when I serve you and I don't feel like it. And the culture says, love is what you do when you feel like it. Jesus didn't feel like it. Agape is not me trying to get you to conform to my journey. That's what the Jews were trying to do. The Jews were trying to get the Gentiles to express their faith in Jewish ways. The Gentiles were like, we don't got time for that. Be gone with y'all. The Jews were like, we're going to do it the way we want. And the light in the church goes, boom. And there's no glory that's being shown upon God through his people. Because we don't all walk in love. Agape. So what might that look like if you were in the Roman church? We're sitting together to have a meal together. I'm a Gentile. You're a Jew. I'm going to be sensitive to those who, within their faith journey, might not be able to eat a certain way or do certain things because that's their journey. I am going to concede space for them to draw closer to God. I'm not going to force me upon them and say, this is love. No, I'm going to you know what? Yeah, I have this awesome ham recipe that my grandma gave me. It's the crock pot, like this is all the thing. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna, I'll bring chicken. We all bring chicken. We all like chicken. They can eat chicken. They can eat chicken. I don't have to do that. I can do this. I'm the Jewish person, the Gentile person. I'm not gonna, they're Gentile. They have the faith. They have a journey. They have a walk. They have space. My responsibility is to be faithful to what God has asked me to do. To him who thinks it's a sin, it's a sin. I'm doing what God has asked me to do. I'm not going to impose my Jewishness upon them. They're not Jews. How can I love them in such a way that they draw closer to God? Walking in agape. Actions chosen to help another person walk closer. After church, we have a first impressions gathering. Those are on first impressions team. Another one, is it Tuesday, Mary? Is it the second one on Tuesday? Yeah. First impressions team, these are the people that you bump into at the doors. Uh, they hand out notes. They prep the coffee. They pr- prep space for you to come in so that you can have a closer walk with God. They're giving of themselves. They're loving you by providing space, creating space for you to experience God. Uh, shoes for the shoeless, serving together. That's going to come up in a couple weeks. The unity of coming together to shine the light of God's love. Can you understand why that love might be noticed by a self-centered world that writes things in their own definitions? Can you understand why what Jesus said? They will notice. The world will notice. Make them one. The world will notice. As an outsider looks on, do you see how they love each other? Do you see how they care for each other? Do you see how they lay down their life for each other? Jesus said, let your light shine. Your good works glorify your Father in heaven. Going on in Romans 15, verse 5. Going on in Romans 15, verse 5. Let's look at another aspect of unity. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant to you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
May God enable you to have a harmony so that with one voice you glorify God. In your notes, maybe we can write unity down this way. Unity is also the song we sing as we proclaim the kingdom. Unity is also the song that we sing as we proclaim the kingdom. Radiance, resonance, the song that we sing. Harmony. Earlier this morning, you heard the artist singing in harmony. They're singing different parts. Singing the same words and one voice singing different parts. Maybe you don't understand harmony. Um, that's great. Chris, can I have a little bit, please? Okay, so if we're not, if we're singing, you know, in unison, uniformity, okay, we'd all sing the same notes. Okay? Harmony, we might sing different notes. And so you could hear maybe Jesse was singing this note, and Jason was singing this note, and Lindsay was singing this note. Word of God speak. They were all saying one voice, one word, singing in harmony, different parts. That's a good song. God, empower in the church their ability to sing in a harmony, a message to have a harmony. So they're going to sing with different voices and from different places on the journey, a Jewish way and a Gentile way. But let them sing one message. Proclaim the kingdom. So let's have an experiment. Let's do an experiment. Ready? Experiment number one. Bring it up, Nick. All right. I want you to pick one word. Don't tell anyone. You pick your word. Maybe it's a word you like. Maybe it's a word you don't like. Maybe it's a word you feel a lot about. Maybe it's a word you don't feel about. I want you to pick your word. It was my goal this morning to offend everybody. You're like, well, my word's not up there. Ha, got you too. I want you to pick your word. Pick a word. Anyone. I don't care. It does not matter. You pick your word. Don't tell. Don't tell. Everyone got your word? Victoria, you got a word? Adam, you got a word? Yep. Eric, you got a word? They all got a word. All right. I got a word. This is your word. This is your word. Hold it. On the count of three, you are going to proclaim your word. You proclaim your word. Okay, you ready? You got your word? On the count of three, you're going to say your word. Proclaim your word. Ready? One, two, three. Well, that didn't sound right. Let's try again. You proclaim your word. Are you ready? One, two, three. It really didn't resonate, did it? It was kind of a muddied, hot, vomited mess. That's what it was. It was a muddy, hot, vomited mess. Why didn't everyone sing my word? Why didn't you say my word? Let's try it again. Maybe we'll get it right this time. Everyone say your word. Ready? Got your word. You got it picked out? Ready? One, two, three. Let's try experiment number two. One, two, three. Jesus. Ah. People online, you say it too. Let's try that again. 
One, two, three. Jesus. Hmm. One more time. One, two, three. Jesus. There's a weight to that. There's a resonance to that. As we give priority to that. As we proclaim his rule and his reign. We all subdivide based on our experiences and our priorities and our feelings and our likes. We subdivide based on that which resonates most with us in that given moment, based on how much coffee we drank and who posted what on Facebook. That's how, that's what we do. I can read your posts and I can tell how you voted but I can't tell if you follow Jesus. One message is to be the kingdom. Jesus only preached one message. You get that? I mean, think about it. He did not mix it up very much. And he went through all Judea and Galilee. What? Proclaiming the gospel. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's it. One t-shirt. One post. One banner. We are to advance one message. I would challenge you, if you're a social media person, whatever social media platform you choose to use, normally you can go back in your history. Go back in your history for the last week, two weeks, three weeks. What was your word? What has you all up in knots? What are you proclaiming? It says this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28. Galatians 3, 26 through 28. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. That's a way of saying all part of one family, all part of one place through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, immersed in the relationship, begun, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? He says, in our faith, there is no ethnic difference, economic difference, social difference, gender difference. Within our faith, it defines the practice of that faith. In other faiths, in other religions, that might make a difference. You're rich, you're poor, that's going to make a difference on where you get a seat in the big house. Or are you a man? Are you a woman? That's going to make a difference on where you can be in the temple. Are you of this ethnicity? Are you of that ethnicity? Hey, that's going to make a difference. Jesus says, no. Apostle Paul says, no. We're one. The cross is level ground. We sing one song, and it's Jesus. We have one message, and it's Jesus and his kingdom. It just so happened a couple weeks ago. This message has been brewing for a while. Up on my social media news feed popped up an article written by a prominent leader, church leader, someone that if I were to say the name, you would recognize who it was. Okay? And underneath his name and his picture was a byline, his bio. This is what it said. American Baptist Evangelical Christian Pastor. So 
what he said. You want to know this guy? American, Baptist, evangelical, Christian, pastor. When you think of adjectives and forming adjectives and forming adjectives, you'd think at least the Christian one would be the one that everything else modifies. But not just American, it's American Baptist American. And of the American Baptist, he's the evangelical one. And of the evangelical ones, he's the Christian one. And of the Christian one, he's the pastor one. We're defining our camp. Who's in? Who's out? None of that helps. None of that helps unity. Only descriptor that I'm a follower of Christ and I'm crucified with him. And this comes from the authenticity of proclaiming a message of love that I live more than I speak, of submitting to and proclaiming the kingdom message. Republican, gay, black, liberal, not helpful. Whatever sticker you've been slapping on the back of your car, please go take it off. Love is not saying you conform to me. Love is saying, what can I do to help you conform to Christ? Love says, what can I do to gospel you to the Father? Our unity reveals God's glory. Our unity comes from those two qualities, agape and the message of the kingdom. That's what's to radiate and that's what's to resonate in our fellowship. Now, believe me, you can be unified over anything. You pick any demonstration, people are unified. Our unity, the unity of the body of Christ, is that we love each other. We proclaim one message, that Jesus is Lord. Can you understand why this would be so important in a fellowship of our type? If you are accustomed a little bit to our demographic, in our heritage, some of us are Baptists. Awesome. That's great. I got a little Baptist in me. Some of us come from a Methodist tradition and a holiness tradition. Awesome. I was ordained in one of those. That's cool. Some of us come from a Catholic tradition. Love it very much. There's a lot that I can learn from you. Some of us have none of that whatsoever. Some of us are Republicans. Some of us are Democrat. Some of us are conservative. Some of us are liberal. Some of us are men. Some of us are women. Some of us are married. Some of us are single. Awesome. Awesome. But within that is this age-old tendency that Paul wrote about in the book of Romans. So you're going to worship Jesus my way, right? You must understand, my shoulders are big enough. My heels are big enough. I can dig them in. We will be a fellowship defined by unity and not uniformity. Which means if you are authentically chasing after Jesus, there is a place for you at the table. And I will keep it safe for you. And our elders will too. If you have another agenda, well, I have another personality for you. 
we will be a fellowship that is committed to glorifying God. The Washington Monument, I've never seen it in person. 555 feet high. It's the highest point in D.C. Did you know that? It'll probably be that way for a long time, just the way some of the rules function in the district. It's the highest point. That pinnacle point is the tallest point in D.C. And when it was finished, it was the tallest structure in the world at that time. 555 feet high. At the very summit of that is a nine-inch aluminum pyramid. And on three of the sides are engraved the contributors, the architects, the builders, the supporters of the project. All engraved on the north side, on the west side, on the south side. But on the east side are two words. Laos Dio. The glory of God. The first point that the sun rises upon our nation's capital are those two words. Glorify God. And upon that face, the sun never sets. Everything else comes underneath that. I'm an Americanist by choice when it comes to history. I like to study American history. There have been times where we have gotten that a whole lot better in 200 years. All of us have allowed a shadow to rise over that point. And maybe there can be a time again. I don't know. But for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. But everything is to fall underneath that truth. So God, help us. That's what Jesus prayed. Father, help them be one. That's what Paul wrote. God of endurance, create them one. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. Thank you for sharing your time with us and we'd love for the journey to continue. If you're a guest, would you consider reaching out to us? We would love to come alongside and encourage you in any way that we can. If you're someone who's joined us today and you are desperately reaching to find hope wherever you can, again, Jesus came that we would find hope. You can find hope today. If you wanna send us a short note, a member of our hope team would reach out quickly, promptly, to come alongside and see what we can do to encourage you in whatever storm you might find yourself in. That's why Jesus came. That's why we're here. Jesus said there's two ways to live your life. And a wise man, a wise woman, builds their life on Jesus' instructions. God bless.